welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. I'm actually walking towards the Faculty of Agriculture at the University of Nairobi Upper Kabete campus at the College of Agriculture and Veterinary Sciences. It's about 20 minutes drive from Kenya's capital city, Nairobi. Now, I'm here to see Professor Paul Kemani, who is a plant breeder. Professor Kemani has extensively researched on a variety of beans for decades. What I'm looking forward to talk about is his work, of course, access to research flows and given climate change, how this is impacting availability of climate data in Kenya. My name is Paul Kemani. I'm a breeder by profession. I'm a teacher. I lecture at the University of Nairobi, basically based in the Apakabeta campus. In addition to the teaching, training graduate students, I've also been conducting research. For now, going to see more than three decades. And over that period, we have worked on a great many crops, not too many. I think we started with work on pigeon peas, bazi. Bass is a superb crop, especially for semi-arid areas. And bass is exceptionally drought tolerant. And this makes a lot of sense, especially given what is happening with the climate. But bass can withstand extremely high levels of drought. And we were able to develop some nice varieties that are suitable for most areas of Kenya. Traditionally, we would classify Kenya into what we would call the high potential, areas with a lot of rainfall the medium potential and the low potential semi-arid, what we call the asal, arid and semi-arid rug. But today, things have changed dramatically. You know, there's hardly in one place where you can say there's no drought. There's no where you can say the, you know, the seasons are what they used to be. Traditionally, we would say in Kenya, we had two major seasons in most places. The long ones would start like, you know, in March or April now and to end up sometimes in uh, July, August. We call it the long lanes. And then the other one will be the short lanes. I'm saying traditionally because it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it will start in September and end up in December, another three months. Again, that's the tradition. Today, those, those seasons have been become confused because of the climate change. For example, so now I know this is April. April, we should be talking about weeding crops. Yet, there are very few places where even maize has germinated, and where it has germinated, it's almost wilting now because of lack of rain. And this has been like this, even last year we had the same problem. So, we one of the crops that we have worked on over that period is pigeon peas. We have good stuff. We have, had, we have taken it to non-traditional areas. For example, we had sites in, uh, in seven counties. We had one in Baringo. Baringo, everybody knows Baringo is very dry, <laughs> very, very dry. Eregeo Maraquet in Lifty Valley and in central Kenya. Oh, we have another one in Lifty Valley, like Kipia. And people know the areas in uh, from Nanyuki northwards are very dry, very, very dry. So, and they extend all the way to Limuruti, the areas north of uh, Nyahuru town. And also in Nyeri, we, we have our work in Nyeri, in county. And the perception that is with many people is that Nyeri is wet. It's not. More than 80% of Nyeri is arid or semi-arid. And with climate change, is worse. In fact, it's only now those areas near the Abadeas, or the slopes, the upper slopes of Abadeas, where you know, tea grows and coffee, that you can say are fairly okay. 
the other areas in the rural areas of Nyeri in Kieni and, and others is very very dry so this is one of the areas where we introduced the pigeon pea and to our big surprise it performed brilliantly then uh, the other place we are doing the new varieties of pigeon pea is uh, in Machakos I said that Machakos is representative of the traditional areas of pigeon pea so we have some of the new varieties and these varieties we have 12 of them that are new very beautiful varieties and uh, also in addition to Machiakos we are in Taitostaveta that whole area is very good for pigeon pea and can perform finally we have Tarakanidi County mm. you know in eastern Kenya these are areas where we are testing the new varieties but the results we have got are simply really interesting for example in Laikipia Pigeon peas just left the climate around that area, although it's semi-arid. I think I must say, although I've had uh, been growing pigeon peas or working on them as a researcher for nearly three decades, I never saw what I, you know, I saw in Laikipia that season. You know, really pods and pods on the plants, you know, that's hard to believe. It's, you know, much better than even what we call the traditional. So we have farmers that you are working with in all those areas who are testing, because there is a whole exercise it's validation. You know, it's such as have developed these ones. So that's pigeon PS1, and I think it's very, very timely because of the trouble we're having. And uh, over the many years we have worked with the pigeon peas, we know one thing. You can plant your maize, you can plant your beans, you can plant your potatoes. And when there's drought like now, the last crop to die. <laughs> They say it's pigeon pea. Mm. And by that time, your cows are already gone. <laughs> <laughs> prof, so, prof, tell me, I, I just want to understand, like, um, and I appreciate how passionate you are about, you know, what you've been doing over the years and working with the farmers. How has, you know, this whole changing of climate impacted the work that you're doing, the bleeding and working with communities, with these farmers? One of the problems, maybe now it's becoming obvious to the other people, but for researchers, we knew drought was a problem. And the issues of climate change were known to researchers from at least, you know, the last 15, 20 years. And people could predict what is likely to happen. One, temperatures are rising. And temperature rising means many things to people, to animals, to crops. Usually negative. Animals don't produce well under hot conditions. Crops, you know, wither. And because there is a lot of loss of moisture. So that's a, that, that's a big problem that is happening right now. And therefore, over time, when we were working the various crops, we always had drought, moisture stress, as one of our interests to look for solutions. And, and, you know, one would say, you know, see, we can, we can solve the problem of drought easily by just irrigating. Absolutely, that's correct. But irrigation is a very expensive preposition. Not only for Kenya, you know, worldwide. Irrigation is expensive. And right now, the amount of water that is available, you know, and we all know in virtually all the towns, the struggle is between People, animals, and crops. Very often the priority is, of course, to, to save people. So we are saying less and less is available for crops. So what are we doing in our breeding? We've been focusing, understanding the mechanism of drought tolerance. 
and uh, as a stress. First of all, we wanted to know what damage it causes to a plant and its productivity, and more important, the ways of solving or you know developing varieties that can grow well under these conditions of drought and climate change. And now we know that you know you can lose as much you know uh, when there's severe drought, and we are it's a to farmers it is quite familiar. You can lose eighty percent or ninety percent or even the whole crop. This is now kind of very common now in many places. So the damage it does is obvious that it causes lower production. Two, it's not just the crops, it's also the forage for animals. I think if you go today to your supermarket, you probably pay more for milk than you used to pay last month and the month before. Why? Because there's not forage. Why? Because forage does not go when it's dry. So we have to take this into consideration. And I said we worked on pigeon pea, we worked on cowpea, which is another drosita and crop and common beans. And we have understood that, you know, one of the best things to happen is that this, the tolerance to drought is genetically controlled. There are genes that can impart tolerance and, you know, tolerance to extremely high levels of drought. And therefore, our breeding for several years has been oriented towards looking for those genes and incorporating them. And also identifying crop species that are model tolerant on others. Because not all the species are equally tolerant. You know, life is very, very interesting. There are those species of plants that are very well adapted to moist areas. You put them in a dry area and they are gone. Mm. So that, I'm saying there's variability among crop species. And I think what we have really zeroed on here in our program is common bean and also pigeon bean. Mm. And to a lesser extent, you know, cowpea. We did the cowpea, but our main focus. Why that? Because like common bean, maharage, maharage is a bigger than many people know. <laughs> it is not only a food crop, but it's also, you know, a healthy crop. We know the kind of problems we are having these days on obesity, micronutrient deficiency, and many others that our forefathers didn't you know, experience. And just do something with the diet. And we are now developed some beans or new varieties, state of the art varieties that are very rich, especially in micronutrients. So, in addition to being a healthy crop, beans is also a sort of income. And there are many types of beans. Beans is not just one nice, you know, maharage too. There are beans for domestic consumption, you know, you know, like the Ruskoko types, the Turu types, the Wairimo types. Those are for domestic consumption. And of course, perhaps we don't know even the, how serious it is a crop in Kenya. Ask yourself one simple question. How many Kenyans will eat beans today in schools, in colleges? So it's a food crop and we consume large quantities of it. Southern Africa in general has the highest per capita consumption of beans that can be as high as 60 kgs. You know, the global average for Africa is that six kgs per person per year. And even those, you know, you know those are the countries like the, modern, the so-called developed world, they are realizing that, you know, crops like beans 
uh, can contribute to their health status. The other big thing is that beans can commodity for international trade. Beans are being moved all over, just like coffee, like cars, everywhere in the international market. And for example, our country imports, and Africa generally imports a lot of beans from China. Uh, so we are importing, like in Kenya, beans from Ethiopia. We are importing lots of beans from Uganda and Northern Tanzania. Of course, we pay in dollars, like they also in Kenya shillings. So it's a big article of trade on one. And these are usually the dry beans, those from Ethiopia, those for the canning industry. But also, we also export the green beans, the, the so-called French. I don't think there's anything French about it. These are Kenyan beans, green beans, <laughs> because they are made, designed, developed, here in Kenya, so why do you give somebody your own credit? You know, so it's Kenya beans, you know, and we can call snap beans or green beans. So we are an exporter of green beans, and uh, Kenyan beans are known, you know, they are in a class of its own in the international markets. And uh, Kenya makes roughly somewhere in the tune of five to seven billion from just green bean exports. You see, that's a lot of money you know, coming into the country in dollars. So that's how we can pay for petroleum. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. we don't have a single well that produces <laughs> petroleum. So beans for petroleum. <laughs> <laughs> and for your Panadol and other drugs, yeah. and your Toyota are paid with beans. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm wondering, there's a lot that you're doing in terms of research, in terms of beans. And we are talking about how much the green beans export is actually generating for the country. Yeah. But I'm wondering in terms of research, how is the give back, the government investing in you guys as the researchers when it comes to doing all this marvelous research that you're actually doing? I got to know you back in, uh, was it in 2015 when you were doing the canned beans for... Yeah. You know, the for the industry, I'm I'm wondering, how has research investment in research improved? Funds flowing. That's a good one, because first of all, at one level, I say you know, we've been you know very very slow. Kenya is capable of funding its own research portfolio in the normal budget, but unfortunately, we've been so dependent on donors, because for the say like nearly now. 30 years I've been in beans. I had projects, you know, supported by USAID. I had projects uh, supported by SEAT. I had projects, you know, that, that's the Swiss and CEDA Canada. I had projects that on beans that were supported by Rockefeller and many other organizations. And I think there was, there's not been a lot of money coming from our own government as such directed to support research. And I think it's not that, you know, the kind of money even we get from those countries, something the Kenya can afford. So I think one of the things that we need to change is uh, the mindsets, that we are completely capable of funding our own research. And this is critical, it's strategic for our country. If there's anything we learned about the vaccines, it's the way that do your research, you perish. You know, we, we saw it. We, we saw yeah. it. We, you know, we had even money to buy, but they did their research. They they, were, they owned it. So that's what I'm saying. In beans, you know, we have external funding. You know, right now we have even some little funding from the British government. Mm -hmm. 
under the zero project, especially to promote. But when I look at the absolute amount of money that are involved in this project, you know, do you think it's a big amount of money? No, it's just probably a budget of two, three million, nothing. But it's two, three million that does wonders. <laughs> the value for money here is very, very, very high. There are two points I would like to make in, in connection with this. So the situation has not improved, but it can improve. I know that during the current government, they did try to put more money into research. But I think there's a big problem. The government is very, very intentional. I know that you know, talking to the Treasury Secretary or Teach, he, he got frustrated too. He gave researchers five billion you know, to distribute to the researchers to do research, but 4.5 went back Why? to the treasury because it was not distributed. He said, Why was it not distributed? You need to have a very competent group to manage research funds, not self in, people with self-interest or who have no idea what they are supposed to do. This is what is killing us. It's not that the government is not investing, no. But this middleman <laughs> and the middle women is where the hell is. They get billions, they don't know what to do with the billions. So they end up now going back to the treasury. When you talk about middlemen and middle women, who are you talking about? I'm talking about the people who are entrusted to manage such and such funds. Okay. And and, and all, it's a cohort of people that is, because the government at the policy level gives money to research. But the question, does it ever reach the researchers? Those people who are entrusted to getting that money to the people, to the research, identifying the researchers, identifying what to fund, that's where the problem is. And that's where some of this money is going back to the treasury. And it's very difficult, like what happened, I think that happened about uh, two, three years ago. It's very hard to justify to the same government, to the same treasury, that you need more money when you cannot use even the five billion you are giving. So th this problem is not the way we think that the government is not funding. The government is giving us money, but the managers to get this work done is where the real trouble is. So it needs to be thought through and the mechanisms must be put in place that ensures this money is actually used. And if you don't get the money to the researchers, you, you also lose your position. Hmm. You know, this is very, very vital. This is what happens in other countries. Because the person who is disbursing the, the money must be accountable, must be accountable. And his success is how many projects have you funded with what kind of results. A good example of what I'm saying is uh, the Australian uh, program, GDC. They are given money by the government of Australia. And then they are told this is government investment. Fund wheat, fund whatever the crops are of interest that can give a return to Australia. And we shall judge you on what you funded and the kind of returns the country is getting. So they are in you know, Jibika. I think if I were, if the minister were to ask me what should we do, I would say when you want to fund research, there are many types of researchers. You know, for example, the key two groups is public universities. And so you have an advisory group that represents those. Don't tell one to manage the other one. It's a self-interest. And the one will tell to try to kill the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you need a neutral body or where there's equal representation. 
Kenya has a lot of people in public universities who are super qualified, for instance. You know, we have 33 public funded universities. You have breeders, you have agronomists, you have horticulturalists. But you must ask yourself, are they doing what they're supposed to do? It's not just teaching. They're supposed, in fact, there's what they call the third dimension, meaning that a good researcher, a good professor, a good lecturer must not only teach, but they also must be also conduct quality research that is publishable internationally, and thirdly, must be involved in development activities. This is what is lacking, that, you know, this is a pool of qualified people, and our, uh, the way we see it is wrong, that the only thing is to teach and turn out the degrees. No, that's fine. We need to train people, but that's not enough. And we should really compare ourselves with other countries that have made huge progress in these areas. Let's compare ourselves with Americans, let's compare ourselves with the Europeans, Australians, and the like, like Japanese, South Americans. Universities are a major contributor to innovations and knowledge. In fact, in the US, the, the roles were reversed. The USDA, which commissions research and everything else in the US, is actually housed in the universities. It's actually housed in the universities, in different universities. Mm -hmm. So Kenya here needs to change. I think to me, if they were to ask me, I would be happy if, uh, you know, maybe the minister or even the president takes a phone and calls the vice chancellor of the University of Nairobi and says, I want you to start a project on Pyrethra and I want all the answers. Direct. This is what will change this country. And another one gets another, maybe university, you, I want you to work on this. Kenya needs it. And I want answers. I'm there for you. I'll support you. And that idea is not new. Remember when we first made our car, it came from the president, President Moy. Mm -hmm. And he commissioned, he said, you guys, I'm going to give you money to design a car, even if it's going to go at two kilometers per hour. Was it done or was it not done? It was done. It was done. So you're saying political will here, that direction from the highest office or that, that interest from the highest interest in terms of the research or what development oriented, like for example, Kenya had these big four agendas. Yeah. So it's not just putting it in paper and or writing That's policies, true. but, you know, say for example, commissioning ah. this particular university, I need you to do research or, you know, survey or whatever in housing or agriculture, when we're talking about agriculture, we're talking about University of Nairobi do research on coffee, Calron do yeah. research on, you know, beans, such yeah. kind of stuff. That is what you're saying, that the highest office and land basically prioritizing research yeah. depending on its development that's agenda. Exactly, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we use the old traditional structures that are impermeable. That's the, the cause of our troubles. We need to change. We would like the president to say, or whoever he appoints in his administration, mm -hmm. I say, you, we have a problem with the coffee. I want a report on this A, B, C, D by next week. I'm paying you a salary. So you are my employee. You see, we have a problem in the cotton. We are importing cotton from Tanzania. We are importing cotton from Uganda and so on. Why can't we produce sufficient cotton here? Tell us. And now tell me how you are going to do it. I'm also going to support you. That will change the whole equation. Do you have example of countries that have actually seen 
that changing the equation of research. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll quote the ones I work with, like in Beans, like mm -hmm. Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. Ethiopia, when we started, I started working in Ethiopia because it was based here as a regional breeder. The average yield of beans was half a ton per hectare. And they had only two varieties. One is called red rollator and another white, uh, white pea bean. You know, it's actually the navy bean. We worked with those people. We said, you know, we need to broaden the genetic diversity. They needed more bean types. They needed to have their resources. They are scientists trained. We, we needed to start programs. And we did that from 2000. You know, I can tell you, most of them I trained here in, in the University of Nairobi. Seat used to pay for them to come here for three weeks, intensive training, how to learn a breeding program. When they went back, you know, we gave them jamplasm, genetic resources, and technical backup. <laughs> and the results in the next decade, which is up to 2000, was enormous, you know, really big. To the extent they came up with the new varieties that were better yielding and more productive. But you see, the researchers could only get to a point. They have identified good products, good technologies, good innovations. They're not the best in the next step. It is at that point that the government of you know the Ethiopian government noticed that you know the, you know land there is something interesting happening. And like the white pea bean has been an export of Ethiopia for many years. And they used to make about 60,000 uh, you know, US dollars, million US dollars a year. So the prime minister used to go to the bean station in uh, Nasareth, now in central Djibouti, to know, learn more about those technologies and what the researchers wanted mm -hmm. and what the country at large wanted. Directly himself, every other two weeks he was there. The result is that he really promoted beans. He became part of the solution to increase the productivity of the white pea bean. He ordered the Ethiopian seed enterprise to multiply the seed disseminate, you know, of the new varieties. Seed was available, fertilizers were available. When we started, Ethiopia was not using fertilizers on beans. Now they did, there were newer varieties. Now the result of that is the exports increased dramatically. They even brought in foreign companies that could process the beans in Ethiopia, you know, and package them. So the exports increased today from 16 million US dollars to today's more than 180 million, trebled within barely 15, 20 years. Mm. That is the money that the country is making. It's actually probably higher than the coffee, the export from that country. And the yields, the yield of beans in Ethiopia, when we started, was the same as in Kenya. Now the Ethiopians, harvesting for every acre three times as much because they have adopted the new technology which was promoted. So things changed. The same situation can be said of uh, Rwanda. You know, they moved from bushy beans to climbing beans. But there's the president. The current president is the one who really put in a lot of pressure. And they have like a personal interest. You know, he said, no, 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 you can't grow the short beans, the traditional one. Get this one. We have rather small and we, that is not expanding. So the youth have also gone. I know the Minister for Education in Rwanda was reporting 1.4 tons. The same kind of initiative happened in Uganda and Tanzania. A lot of interest. But it does may have be very well meaning. But in between, there is a layer of bureaucrats <laughs> who seem to have a different agenda. So things never really work. Mm. So it's good when they get involved 
For example, here we are saying in the University of Nairobi, we have many, many nice world-class varieties. We supported all these countries, 10 of them, in the so-called Asaleka region. We trained their people, we gave them genetic resources. Now we are buying from them. Why can't we do it here? Because, you know, we're not doing what the, these people did. So I think it's important that we take these strategic things. Because, for example, beans go straight to the one of the key pillars, food and nutritional security. You can't beat beans on that one. Other than maize, beans is number two, but maize is starch. Beans is protein, okay, and it's minerals as well. So the two complement one another. Mm -hmm. You cannot talk about being food secure on the maize. And there are many other, what I'm saying, many other initiatives like this. I'm just wondering, given the climate change, how does that bureaucracy that actually is preventing finance flow is impacting the capability of mm. you as local researchers, okay. and not just the University of Nairobi, but CalRO and different other institutions that do research, how is it impacting or deterring local researchers from getting into the field and understanding local challenges when it comes to like agriculture and, and different fields in terms of research and also hindering also understanding vulnerabilities mm. and how we can actually adapt. No, no, that's, that's, that's important because we need to understand the challenge of climate variability and uh, the changes that are happening and the effects that this has on the different sectors of our economy and livelihoods. And the only problem is that, you know, if research money is not flowing, you can't do much. And it has direct impact on the data, the quality of data. Because very often we say in science, you know, your decisions are as good as the data you use. Absolutely. If your data is not very good quality, then it means your decisions will be off the mark. And the, the impact you, that perhaps you intended to get, you to get. That's number one. Number two, I think every country owes itself a survival. By this, nobody owes you any research money. <laughs> or to, to, to help you in any way. Mm -hmm. It is your own creativity that will take you out of problems. What does that mean? That we must solve our own problems. We have to solve our problems. We can't depend on some foreign government or country, no. And we have good brains here. We have no shortage of that. It's an enormous resource that we need to use. So I think it's the way we are managing, and I know the government is committed to this, but it's the way we are doing it that is the problem. You know, when you create giant organizations, you know, they have their own inefficiencies. I think it's better if you want to say, for example, you know, and I can tell you this has worked in many countries. If I want to develop cotton, I must ask you who, when, where, and how. <laughs> and I get myself a national team. I would call it the National Cotton Research and Development Program. And I've got the key guys, you know, good guys, breeders, agronomists, entomologists, economists, all specialities that are there are required to develop that crop to the, and get it to the market because we are responding to the market. That does not cost a fortune. This is a mistake we make. It's just a handful. Maybe the whole team will not even take something like 10 million, you know, a budget of 10 million. And they will do what, you know, don't give money to great talkers, but to good, great doers. <laughs>
you see, and monitor them. Don't have, you know, so how they do that. I must ask myself, which crops, which commodities are critical in our economy, in the future of our country? If I say cotton, like now I know, there, you know, there's this agora, there is a lot of interest. But we don't have a national program that is developing cotton. What are we doing? Depending on Indians. <laughs> That's not going to work anyway. Because, you know, how did India develop these varieties? By relying on their own researchers. Mm. We know about even how the, you know, the cotton began here. And you can see there's something interesting about cotton and maybe mention it. Cotton is actually started in 1900 in this, in this region here. The were introduced from USA, blah, 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 and those other countries. They were tested. But two countries saw the value of cotton as the future. That is Tanzania. And they started a program at Ukiriguru of cotton improvement. And Uganda also started, you know, one in Namlong in the 1934. And they have developed, solved many of the cotton's problems. Fast forward to 2021, 2022. Kenya has a good market for apparels, textiles, and the like, and the Diawa program. But what is the big thing there? We cannot get the kind of quantity of cotton we need and the quality. So who are we importing from? The very countries that invested in research. <laughs> so that's what the point we are making. That unless we, if we invest in research, we are not going to get anywhere. And that's now to be very costly. The programs like in Riyamungu have produced the varieties they have in Tanzania. Even our own programs here, we are able to produce half of the wheat we consume because we had a good program that was at Joro for years, since 1927. So, research is key. We are able to get maize. We grow various hybrids, 16, 14, 28, 26. Where did it originate? 1957, when there was a big project on maize breeding by Penny, Dara, Eberhardt, and, and, and all those. Mm. That's the foundation. In fact, the very first hybrid of Ke in Kenya originated from that program in Kitale. And the first hybrid was, you know, the, released in 1964. And because of its high yield potential and a good performance, farmers who are growing other types of varieties switched over. Mm. That's why we have, that has continued since 1964. Mm. Mm. We have many improvements. Yeah. So what are my, my import of this? That without the research we are going nowhere. We shall keep on keep on, 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 on doing firefighting, meaning there's no maize, there's no this, there's no that. No, and so on. We don't have enough cotton for the industry. We don't have enough beans for the industry. We don't have this or the other one. I I, I think we need to have market-oriented research programs. You know that are supported well by the taxpayer. That's what I saw in Australia. They have many from cashew nuts and others. And that is happening worldwide. Mm. So it's not likely that we are going to be any different. Absolutely. If we depend on international donors to actually keep funding our research, of course, if I'm giving the money, I will give direction in terms of where, depending on my own interest, right? Yeah. And if we are talking about market-oriented or um, domestic need-oriented research, development-oriented research for a country, 
then a country has to invest in that research where the taxpayers also invest in that and improves in terms of the quality of development for that country. Talk to us in terms of what's the difference between when a country funds research and when donors fund research. Okay. You must ask you, why do donors support your research? Hmm. Because it furthers the interests of your countries. Sure. You see? So when they come here and they fund your project, they skew they advertise proposals, call for proposal, blah, 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 blah. But they know what they're looking for, you see. So whatever programs are developed are not necessarily for the host country. They have an interest in that. And I think it's a common thing. And we saw it, you know. So our country cannot hope reasonably depend on donor money to find its own research. It's too important. And they know this, this is a fact. They said, I think the African Genesis 34 AU says, science is too important to be outsourced. Hmm. Those who was, they did not come back to haunt us last year. You know, we wait yeah. for other people to develop vaccines yeah. and then we go begging. And we wash on dust. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that there's something wrong incorrigibly wrong with us, but we must put our money where our interest is. And we must really think like it was in Kibaki. Because I remember in 204, Kibaki had this, he, he understands, he was a lecturer in Makere and he, he worked with the government for many years. President said something that was really uplifting. When they were in a meeting in Safari Park, there was an issue between them and the donors. And, it, and the, the report of that day was that you know, we are funding our programs 95%. And if you squeeze us any further, we can do 100%. That's the kind of thinking we need to have. Mm. And it was real. You see the government budget, you know what I mean? We are funding it here. Yeah. Kenya must mature now. It must move from a dependency syndrome, which kills you, to in an autotrophic mode. <laughs> that we are responsible for our own well-being and survival. We must do our own research, whether it's the creating vaccines, and I must you know, say the government is doing very well on this. We are capable. We are capable. We must just think differently. Mm. That, you know, even the money we are talking about, you have to support this. It's just, you know, probably not no more than two, three, four billions. And I know the former finance minister, Rotich, put even five billion, except that he never reached the researchers. Yeah. So it, 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 that's what I'm saying, that it's, it's not worth it. I mean, it's not appropriate, rather, to depend on donors. I think they have supported us long enough. It's time that we started now transitioning to working on our feet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so, yeah. so much. I think before I let you go, it's just the whole understanding when donors fund research, that data, the, the final data that is actually you gather, that, that is actually gathered, where does it end? Very good. It ends two places, their countries. <laughs> their countries and, and also a little bit. Is, we have the data. But it's cranking, trying to squeeze the meaning of that that is that's very important. Two, having the data itself is not enough. It's what that data is saying that we should implement. 
for example, like us breeders, like now when I do pigeon piece that we are promoting, like in like QP and other counties, I get the data and it just tells me this variety is just superb, okay? That's not enough. The next thing is, how do I get the seed for the, the farmers? And farmers say as much. So, but let's do remember this, and it's vital that the donors use the taxpayers' money of their countries. And they must demonstrate what benefit that country is going to get out of this. So they pursue their interests. And, and, and that's legitimate. I have no problem with this. That's completely legitimate. But it's us that need to change. This is what the Koreans did. That's what Chinese did. You know, they didn't have all the money like they do today. But they put their people and told them, you know, we trust you. Work for our country. Today we can all see the results of the research. You see, you have Samsung, you have a Hyundai, you have, I don't know, whoever, Jaifang, you can see Zygma, where they come from, research. But government investing in its own people and demanding they deliver. Because it's not just a question of giving me money and then I, no, 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 no. In a pata pesa, in our jibika to develop. If I look at this office of mine, the work we have done, you know, the products here are worth billions, but it's only a tiny fraction, you see? And they can change, they can contribute directly to three of the four big pillars, the big agenda. So it didn't cost a fortune. And that, there's one thing I should always, you know, that when they ask you, does the government fund your research? I say, well, yes. Why? Because my salary comes from the government. So if it's not for the government, I won't be here. <laughs> so I may look for operational money from elsewhere, but I, I acknowledge that in every post I do, contribution of the government of Kenya. Mm. Because you know, that's where I get my food. Sure. <laughs> They're the ones who have employed me, but I have a very good return to their investment. I take the salary they give me as an investment and have good accountability. Thank you so, so much, Professor. It's always a pleasure having a conversation with you. Um, and so I really, really appreciate you contributing to this episode today. Thank you. We are we, we happy because of your role. I, I think one of the weaknesses in our systems is the information the researchers have never get to reach. Mm. The people who needed sure. it yesterday, the policy maker, okay? The farmer. You see, they need to know there's something like this. You know, there is Kenya Ajabu, mm. not Canadian Wanda. No. Kenya <laughs> Wanda. <laughs> so, and they can grow. You know, we, we need to be happy, you know, the, the, with the media yeah. that communicate this information. Sure. Like it says in the Bible, you can't write a lamp and then put it under the Absolutely. table. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you are the people who put the lamp on the table. So, mm. we appreciate that. So, this partnership is critical. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was Professor Paul Kimani, a plant breeder and lecturer at the University of Nairobi College of Agriculture and Veterinary Sciences, talking to us there about his work and how financing of research in Kenya is impacting on the availability of data that is key to understanding where Kenya is coming from, um, where it is at and of course where it's going given its agriculture and food security is one of the sectors mostly impacted by climate change. Remember our programming changed from weekly to bi-monthly. 
you can access previous episodes on every podcast channel you access your other podcast from. You can also listen to any of the episodes through our website, www.africaclimateconversations.com. If you are on Twitter, we will be having a Twitter space chat on funding research in Africa next week on the 26th, that is next week on Tuesday. Please do join us for that. But until next week, for now, my name is Sophie Mbogwa. Thank you.